Okay, welcome everyone to this public habura. It's good to see you, regular faces, and everyone watching the recordings. Uh, today's session uh, is the first of a two-part series with Rav Chaim Angel, uh, who we are privileged to have had several times, and it's always a pleasure having him with us. And we not only enjoy his presentations, but also his focus on on Mikra, on Tanakh, the text, and the ability to find such you know inspiring insights into important themes and ideas and this week we'll be looking at the chosen people and its relationship with western values next week we'll be looking at the afterlife um so we're very excited and fascinating topics for those who don't know uh Rav Chaim Angel is national scholar of the Institute for Jewish Ideas and Ideals a fantastic website and journal and I definitely encourage you to look into it uh, and he teaches uh, at Tanakh courses at Yeshiva University. He has authored or edited 20 books and has written over 150 articles, primarily in Tanakh and Jewish thoughts. So without further ado, Rabbi, all yours. Thank you so much. And again, thank you to you and to the Chabura for, for having me again. I always enjoy our learning together. Uh, I see that Melech Elias asked to post the thing. Is it possible for you to post that? Because I can't post mine because, of course, I'm sharing it. That would be great. Voila, we're all good, and we're all good, and we're happy. All right, so chosen people. Uh, when I was a kid, this was a very easy topic. I knew that I was chosen. I knew that you were chosen, too. I didn't even need to know you, and it felt really nice, I have to say. My teachers made a nice deal about it in, in when I was a little kid. We all knew that we were somehow the chosen people. Hashem loves us, and there's something about the Jewish people, this and that. And it was all great as a little kid. And then suddenly I'm a rabbi starting to teach in all these different communities. And somebody asked me to give a talk on this topic. And I realized I hadn't the foggiest idea what it meant. After all those years of yeshiva day school and smicha and various master's degrees and plenty of learning on my own, I had zero idea what it meant. And so I'm like, okay, great. Here's a topic that by now I'm an adult and given that I happen to live in the 21st century West, uh, makes me uncomfortable. Coupled with utter and total ignorance, which was surprising because this is not a trivial theme in Tanakh. This actually is a global theme in Tanakh, and you would think at some point this would be a really important topic to discuss. So I had to spend a long time piecing this all together because it really does inc incorporate many biblical books that, of course, loads of rabbinic thought. And then I had to try to prepare it into a shiur. Turns out that this was a good move because, first of all, now I have something to talk about. And second of all, it's useful because when I go away as a scholar in residence, it depends on the situation, but oftentimes either the rabbi or the head of the educational committee asks me for a list of topics. I'll give a bunch of different topics. And by far, I mean, by far, I, I don't have a ranking system beyond first place, but the first place topic selected is definitely head and shoulders above whatever number two happens to be this one. And I think the reason why this one gets so much airtime uh, is precisely because so many people in the West know that it's an important topic and they're uncomfortable with it. They're uncomfortable with it both on the grounds that uh, we've all met Jews. I know that nobody who belongs to the Chabura or is involved in any of its organization, and certainly nobody for the Institute for Jewish Ideas and Ideals either, possibly would be chauvinistic about this topic. But there are many other people out there who certainly are. And this goes both for Jews, who can become terribly myopic and chauvinistic about this topic. And uh, I don't need to tell you, you do not need to be a Jewish historian to know 
that various major religious groups, including Christians and Muslims, had a very big issue with Jewish chosenness. And each in its own major religion sort of way drastically tried to change the game. Where they didn't eliminate the idea of chosenness. They just shifted it to various other parties. And that also led to a lot of headaches and worse for Jews. And so this topic has been one that has really caused a lot of uh, concern and much, much worse. Uh, so I've given this talk many times. Usually when I give this talk, it's to Jewish audiences, whether here, synagogues, schools, you name it. Uh, one time I actually spoke at an organization called the National Bible Association. The Nas I had never heard of it before, although it turned out that I had. The National Bible Association is a group in America that basically their big project in life is they're the guys who put those Bibles in your hotel room drawers. They raise money and they have Bibles all over the place. And so they had a dinner. It's a primarily evangelical Christian group. They decided to get others involved, including Jews. So they had this big dinner back in 2007, and they had me speak as you know, a five-minute talk. So at this entire dinner, it was really cool. It was a cool experience for me. I'll share it. Uh, there were six total Jews who came to the dinner. And there were hundreds and hundreds of Bible-believing Christians of all different denominations. And the other five Jews, not surprisingly, were late. So I actually was the only Jew in the room talking to hundreds and hundreds of Bible-believing Christians. And of course, I spoke about the chosen people. I thought that was a really important topic to address, and I thought that what better place in the world to talk about it than here. And in case you were curious what the results were, uh, they did clap, which is way better than stark silence or worse. And they even invited me to speak at a future dinner, but I thought one was more than enough. So I, I, set, I, settled, I settled for that. Okay, so that's the, that's the topic, and I, just, I think it's just a really important one that we, that we have. That's just a little anecdote, but I think it's actually a very telling one in terms of where the shiur will go. So I'm focusing primarily on the biblical side of things, as Avi pointed out correctly. Uh, that's, that's, my, that's my area. I, I like focusing on Mikra, Tanakh, Bible, whatever you want to call it. I call it Tanakh, but the other ones are good too. And I'm interested in how the biblical portrayal of chosenness goes. Obviously, there will be sprinklings of rabbinical thought as well, but I'm interested in, in keeping it primarily biblical with the hope of you could then plug it into various rabbinic approaches. Okay, cool question to ask. You know how uh, the the Jewish calendar that we use is 5784. That started in the medieval period. That's not We have not always used the creation for the beginning of our counting system. But all the same, at some point we picked it up, primarily because Christians and Muslims had their year one, so we needed a year one too. Okay, so if you have to be on that council of, of Jews or rabbis, whoever's doing this, coming up with what should the Jewish year one be? I mean, the Christians have year one, makes perfect sense to me, foundation of their religion. Muslims, their year one, great. They start with the, their foundation of their religion. Okay, so where should the foundation of our religion be if we're going to have a year one? So when I ask this to groups uh, not in Zoom, where in, you can participate over Zoom, and I hope that you will at some point, whether at the end or via chat or however else you would like, the top two answers by far, and I'm, I'll bet you may have even come up with one of them, is second place, a distant second place, is Avraham Avinu. Somehow many view him as the founder of our faith, as we know it. And as a result, okay, he's certainly the founder of our people in a more limited sense. Great. That's second place vote for many. And the top vote by far is always going to be 
the year of the Exodus and the giving of the Torah. That's really where our religious system as we know it began. It obviously has evolved tons over millennia, but that's really our religious system that we use. So when I ask live audiences, what should the what should our year one be if we were choosing? Those are the top two answers. Matan Torah is definitely by far the first. Avraham is second. Nobody votes for Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve. Nobody would even think of voting for Adam and Eve. That's what, what, is, what is that? They're nice people and all. You know, they eat one fruit. That's their mistake. But by and large, they seem okay. Uh, but they're not the founders of our religious system. They're simply the first people mentioned in the Torah. So why in the world should these two people become our year one? Okay, so that's just a really interesting starting point. Now, again, I understand I'm trying to creep into the medieval minds of the rabbis who started year one, but instead of creeping into their minds, let's creep into the Torah's mind for just a minute, because, of course, that is where the Torah starts the story. It's interesting that it starts not with our people, and it's also interesting that it starts somewhere outside of the land of Israel probably in the Mesopotamian region. It's a little tricky because we don't know two of the four rivers. So there's some scholarly debate over that, but all the same, Tigris and Euphrates, we know. Fertile Crescent sounds good for me. I'm, I'm content. Okay. So why does the Torah start its narrative there? So that's already a Torah question. It's no longer a medieval rabbinic question. And that's, that's where we get interested. So we find out in source number one over here, I'm going to read the sources in English, but you have the Hebrew at your disposal as well. Uh, in the creation narrative, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. They shall rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the cattle, the whole earth, all the creeping things that creep on earth. God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Lovely. So God created all people in God's image, whatever that's supposed to mean. Now, because it's not clear, so there's a debate. That's the way these things go. Uh, many modern scholars follow the suggestion, with or without giving him credit, of Rav Sadia Gaon, of 9th and 10th century Babylonia, who notices that the image of God is connected somehow to the fact that we're going to rule over all of these creations. So it sounds like whatever it means to be in God's image contains a functional role. That just as God is the master of the universe and the ruler of the universe, so too we are going to rule over earth. Okay, that works. That's definitely excellent. Some others add things like rational thought, free will, creativity, givingness, compassion, etc. That works for me too. Uh, they're all lovely definitions. Uh, but all I can tell you is that however you wish to shape your definition of the image of God, the Torah comes in with two preconceived notions, which it wants us to share, about all people. And they both go to the Cain and Hevel story. One thing is really interesting. Cain is a farmer and Hevel is a shepherd. And somehow one day Cain wakes up and says, I think I'm going to bring a sacrifice to God. How in the world did he do that? God never commanded him to give sacrifices. He did not have ac access to Sefer Vayikra. How in the world does he know to go about serving God? And then Hevel follows suit. Before, by the end of the chapter, chapter 4, this is in Breshit. People are praying to God. How in the world do people know to bring sacrifices and pray? How do they know that they should have a relationship with God? The answer is that they do. Somehow, being created in God's image means that we're, we have the inborn... Uh, people are trying to get admitted to the waiting room, by the way. I assume that one of you administrators can let them in. Thank you so much. Okay. I don't even know how I saw that message, but cool. I'm happy to, happy to be privy to that. In the meantime, uh, getting back over to here. 
it sounds like the Torah assumes that people just inherently have some need to reach out to God. Even pagans, with all of their errors in their religious system and their morality, at least in principle, they have the right idea. They don't think that they made the cosmos. They know that there are forces beyond themselves, and they just happen to have it wrong. But good for them that at least they understand there's something beyond them. There's some natural instinct that people have of all backgrounds to serve their creator and to serve the powers of the universe, or since it's one God, the power of the universe. Okay, that's assumption number one. Another assumption that comes out of the Cain and Hevel story is you don't have to be a very good attorney. Cain murders his brother Hevel. He's jealous, he's upset, etc. Okay, God is very angry at him. Cain's attorney would be able to look at God theoretically and say, um, nobody told me that it was wrong. Or nobody told my client that it was wrong. How in the world is Cain supposed to know that murder is wrong? Nobody gave him any commandments. And the answer is, you know, because you're a human being created in God's image. Somehow, it is expected that people should have the most basic level of human decency and morality. We're not talking about saintly. We're not talking about unbelievable balei chesed or tzedakah or generous spirit or amazing moral sense. We're talking about the most basic human decency. And somehow that is expected, which is why Cain can be punished and later on the world can get a flood. Even though nobody, at least in the Torah's text, nobody knows that these things are wrong, and yet somehow everybody knows that they're wrong. So whatever definition you wish to have about image of God, it should include some version of desire to reach out to Hashem, to some power beyond, and uh, to have some basic level of decency. Great. In which case, image of God is a challenge, as Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik says in a number of places, including a collection of lectures that were written up as essays called Family Redeemed. He makes that point. The image of God is not just a divinely endowed gift that we somehow all have. It's a challenge. God expects certain things of all people from the get-go. That includes basic human decency. That includes this desire to reach out to him. Okay, so far so good. Meantime, you know the script of the Torah. Adam and Eve fail. They don't get killed, but they're banished from the Garden of Eden. Then in Noah's time, there's a flood because humanity seriously fails. Then God gives what you and I call in halacha the seven Noahide laws, the Sheva Mitzvah B'nei Noach. After the flood, there definitely are laws given. There's no way in the world you see seven of them explicitly in the text. But it gives you enough of a basis for our sages to derive the core seven laws, which include belief in one God, not cursing God, because that would undermine that authority, not committing murder, not committing adultery, not stealing, not, if you're going to eat, make sure the animal is dead first. Don't eat from a limb of a live, a currently living animal. And also have a court system to enforce those other six rules. That's it. That involves the most basic level of human decency on a societal level. But alas, all that we know about Noah after the flood is he grows some grapes, gets drunk as a skunk, and the rest is history over there. There's no, nothing about Noah building a better world after the flood. Then you end up with the Tower of Babel. That's a very important story that is great for another shiur, but the bottom line is, whatever it is, this represents a rupture. That whatever they did was so bad that God doesn't just give them other languages and scatter them. But this is the moment in the Torah where God stops relating to all humanity and chooses Avraham Avinu. 
This is the first time that God chooses one member of the human species to do something special. Up until now, it's just one glob of people. They all seem to be together. They're all interacting as one community, and God relates to that community. So suddenly God chooses Avraham. There's a really interesting debate between, it's, you know, one of the one of those good force 10 debates in life, Ramban against Maharal of Prague. Well, why did God choose Avraham anyway? It's sort of strange how in the Torah, God just speaks to Avraham and says, okay, up and go, leave this land and, and go wherever I show you. He ends up in the land, what you, you and I call the land of Israel. And then the whole saga begins. All right, but why did God speak to Avraham in the first place? Why him? That's the one nice glitch in everything else about the Shi'ur. The whole rest of the Shi'ur is about Torah is a meritocracy. There's merit. Noah is saved because he is righteous. Yitzchak beats Yishmael and the other six brothers, at least in part, for his righteousness. Yaakov is going to beat Esav, at least in part, for his righteousness. This does not mean that they are without flaw. It just means that they are the best of the bunch. So they get to carry on this chosen legacy. Well, why did God choose Avraham, though? Ramban, the first protagonist of this debate, says, obviously, he was righteous. Just look at the rest of the script. Everybody is getting chosen because of righteousness. There is an element of merit. Where do you see Avraham's righteousness? Not in the Torah, but in the world of Midrash. Oh boy, lots. He discovers one God. He becomes incredibly ethical. He starts winning converts to monotheism and beyond. He and Sarah, they're great. Okay. He even was willing to martyr himself on behalf of God, according to the whole Midrashic tradition. Ramban says that Midrashic tradition, A, is true. B, that's the reason why God chose Avraham. What you and I have in the Torah is the flip side, which is it was an excellent choice. Avraham is fantastic. Uh, So we can see that Avraham certainly is a worthy man to have been chosen. But we don't see the cause of that in the Torah itself. So Ramban simply imports the Midrash as the missing link. The Maral of Prague says, no. The whole point of the way the Torah tells the story is that it should not be God chose Avraham because it was righteous. God chose Avraham because God wanted to. And that means that it is a permanent divine choice that is not conditional on good behavior. There are massive implications of this debate in terms of how we view chosenness. Do we view chosenness as a merit-earned system, in which case it's vulnerable to sinful behavior? Or do we say that it is absolute because God made it that way, and the descendants of Avraham through Yitzchak and Yaakov are the chosen people whether or not we sin? Now, you know all those bad rabbi jokes. There's no such thing, so far as I can tell. You can always text me later on. I've never heard a good rabbi joke. They're great attorney jokes, amazing ones, uh, but never good rabbi jokes. I think all we're able to do in any of the jokes is outwit hapless Protestant ministers and Catholic priests, occasionally imams. That's about it. We, we very rarely do anything better or funnier than that in any of the litany of jokes that I've heard about rabbis over the years. But, you know, the one about, I'll just give the punchline, uh, where the rabbi has to hear two conflicting views, and he tells both of them that they're right, and the students afterwards say, Rabbi, they can't both be right. It's like, you're right too. Okay, so it's a way of, you know, making fun of the rabbinate and that sometimes we have to be overly diplomatic. Okay, fine. So the point is made in the joke. In this case, Ramban and Maral, even though they have diametrically opposed positions, are both completely correct. And we will see that through the rest of the shiur. 
Ramban's whole point is that chosenness is conditional, and Maharal's whole point is that chosenness is unconditional, and they're both completely correct, even though that doesn't seem possible. Stay tuned. Okay, so here we go. Once we have Avraham as the chosen man, the whole rest of Sefer Breshit, as far as this shiur goes, is very simple. It's a filtering system. It's not all the descendants of Avraham. Avraham has eight sons. One of them, Yitzchak, is the one who is the heir to Avraham's legacy. Okay, then Avraham has two sons, Yaakov and Esav. Yaakov is the heir to that legacy. Yaakov has 12 sons, and for a good long while, it looks like Yosef is going to win and the others are going to lose. They don't like that too much either. But by the end, Baruch Hashem, by the end of Sefer Breshid, it is clinched. All 12 sons of Yaakov will become the 12 tribes of Israel. They will all be bearing this chosen legacy. So if Tanakh stopped at Sefer Breshid, A, we'd be missing an awful lot. And B, we would come to the conclusion, okay, God started originally with all of humanity. But because humanity failed on three occasions, the Garden of Eden, the Flood, and the Tower of Babel, God then shifted gears and chose the descendants of Abraham, which it turns out to be through uh, Yaakov. Now, all I've done up until now in this entire shiur, I've, I've been at it for over 20 minutes, is I've plagiarized Rabbi Ovadias Forna. So let's unplagiarize him by giving him credit for this in source number two. In his introduction, he makes this point. I'm just spelling out what he says very succinctly. So I just wanted to flesh out what he, because he, he just has the whole thing at his fingertips. It then teaches that when hope for the return of all humanity was removed, as it has successfully destroyed God's constructive intent three times already, humanity has already failed three times, God selected the most pious of the species, that's Abraham, and chose Abraham and his descendants to achieve his desired purpose for all humanity. Okay, so Sforno is already saying something very critical, that choosing one family out of humanity was God's plan B. Really, plan A was all humanity is created in God's image. Once humanity failed, in America, I would say three strikes and you're out. It's a baseball thing. And, and so Sforno anticipates this in 16th century Italy. He understands the rule very, very well. Now it's time to shift gears and we go to plan B, which is let's get Avraham to develop an ideal family, and that family will bring all humanity back to God's plan A, which is that God wants to relate to all of humanity. That's Sefer Breshit for the purposes of our shiur. The question, now I have to ask two hard questions. Uh, question number one, if Israel sins, can they lose their chosenness just as humanity sinned three times and lost its chosenness? It's a tough question, but it's important to ask. And then the flip side is, let's say the rest of humanity starts being good again. Can they be chosen again? Or once this rupture happened, is that just a permanent deal? Now are the descendants of Abraham the chosen people and everybody else are not the chosen people forever? How should that go? So Tanakh actually gives answers to both of those hard questions. For that, you need the other 23 books. Obviously, I'm just going to choose a handful of these sources that happen to really just march the shiur along. Uh, but I think that they're representative. I think that I think that these verses are not just picked out in order to make a certain point. I think they really are representative of what all of Tanakh does. So in source three, we actually have a very clear answer to the first one. Right at Mount Sinai. Here they are about to receive the Torah. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own treasure among all peoples, for the, all the earth is mine. So it's very clear what the Torah is saying. If you obey my voice, in other words, if you, Israel, merit this covenant by observing it, then you shall be my own treasure. 
what God does not spell out here, but sounds to be fairly implied is, and if you do not keep the covenant, then you will not be my treasure. doesn't say it. That sounds like what he's saying. It sounds like at this moment of consummating the entire covenant, which is a very vital moment indeed, uh, God is saying that our chosenness is conditional on our observance of the Torah. And somehow, if we don't do that, then we will forfeit that. Just to finish this passage, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the people of Israel. That's all very nice and good, but that's only if we're good. What happens if we're not? It sounds like we can forfeit this treasure status, this chosen status. And indeed, if you go to the 8th century BCE prophet Hosea, Hosea was among the very last of the northern prophets of Israel before the the Ten Lost Tribes were lost by the Assyrians. He prophesied in that generation when the Ten Lost Tribes became lost and the Assyrians exiled them. So he has three sons. uh, No, he has three children. One is a daughter. Uh, He has two sons and one daughter. They're people who have very symbolic names that I would not personally want to have if I were going to kindergarten uh, because they're very symbolic names but very negative names. So the third of these three is this one that we're going to read about here in Source 4. She conceived and bore a son. Then he said, name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people and I will not be your God. Okay. That's just what Hashem said in at Mount Sinai. Since Israel is now sinning, they are not God's people anymore. So it's a very bleak and blunt prophecy, but it's simply a very, it's a very strong follow-up, which is basically the implication of all of that. So it happens that the prophets were very romantic, and one of their running theme imageries for how do we depict the God-Israel relationship, one of those running themes is a marriage. There are others also, but the one that matters today is the marriage one. God is the husband, and we are the wife. Since we have betrayed God, we have been a terribly unfaithful wife. Well, terrible things are now happening, and God sends us away, and that's what the exile is in numerous prophetic passages. But then the question comes up, should this God sending Israel away into exile be considered a separation or a divorce? In a separation, the idea is that, okay, the marriage is, you can't do anything with it now. It's a dead marriage because Israel is cheating on God. She's being unfaithful to God. Okay, so they cannot continue on in the marriage. But separation will give Israel a chance to think things through. And if she's ready to return, God is willing to have her back. The marriage is not over. The divorce imagery is, okay, no, it's really a permanent severance of the relationship. You've sinned, the relationship cannot go on, and now it is over. So fortunately, the prophets address this question explicitly. It's not me in the 21st century trying to come up with a catchy way of describing it. This is simply all prophetic terminology. So in Source 5, you have the Navi addressing the exile, saying, Thus said the Lord, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement? with which I have put her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? There's no divorce. There's no get. It's a separation, guys. Don't you get it? This exile is terrible. It harms the marriage. It's certainly not a functioning marriage right now. But there's no divorce. Please come back. An even more extreme manifestation of that imagery is in the book of Jeremiah, the prophet who presided over the destruction of the temple as the Babylonians invaded in source 6. It is said, If a man sends away his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man, shall he return to her again? Shall not that land be greatly polluted? There's a law in the Torah. It's in Deuteronomy, Devarim, chapter 24. If a man is married to a woman, the marriage does not work out. So now 
man gives woman a get, what we call a get in halakha, rid of divorce. Okay, then the woman goes around and marries man man B. Okay, good. And then they go ahead and get divorced. This woman now may marry man C, but she's not allowed to return to man A. That's the law. It protects marriage. Otherwise, people could just trade for the night and go right back to being with their original spouse. It would be too easy to invalidate the whole idea of marriage. It would be disgusting. I'm all good with that law. So in the book of Jeremiah here, God is playing off of that law and saying, look, I know the law, but here's the mashal, here's the parable. God was married to Israel. Then they got divorced. He's even willing to use the term of divorce here. Now Israel's married to idolatry. That's, that's man B. God is saying, you need to divorce the idolatry. And even though, according to the Torah, a human man cannot retake this wife, I want you back. So the bottom line is it's the same thing. It's a separation, not a permanent divorce. But he just makes it a lot more colorful by using this legal imagery. And indeed, all the prophets are filled with prophecies. I just quote one from the book of Yirmiyahu. Jeremiah, because it's the same Navi, thus says the Lord, who established the sun for light by day, the laws of moon and stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea into roaring waves, whose name is the Lord of hosts. If these laws should ever be annulled by me, declares the Lord, only then would the offspring of Israel cease to be a nation before me for all time. In other words, this relationship is permanent. So to answer the first question, is Israel's chosenness, conditional on righteous behavior? The answer, of course, is yes, no. It is totally conditional on righteousness. That was Ramban's point, right? Which is why Hosea could say that we're low ami, and God could say at the Ten Commandments, right before the revelation, uh, if you are faithful to this covenant, then you'll be my treasure. And at the same time, no, it's not conditional at all. God's eternal relationship with Israel, even when they sin, goes on. There never is a divorce. It's always a separation. And God always waits with open arms precisely because even sinful behavior cannot end the marriage. So Ramban and Maharal, as I told you before, are both completely correct. The biblical evidence fully supports both of their views. Okay, so that's side one. Side two, can non-Jews uh, become chosen again if they embrace God. When I say embrace God, I, do, I love this about Judaism. I love many things about Judaism. But I love the fact that we never expect all humans to become Jews. The idea that all humans simply need to keep the Shefa Mitzvah B'nai Noach is a very big deal. They need to be righteous. They need to be decent. And then we're good. We, we don't care about the specifics after that. And we consider them completely righteous and pious people uh, to varying degrees. But that's all very good. Let's say all people do that. Well, the answer is unequivocally, of course God takes them back, right? And we have one of the most uh, dramatic representations of that view is in source number eight, and also in the book of Yeshayahu, Parak 19, Parak 9, yeah, chapter 19. In that day, first, the first half of chapter 19, it's just fire and brimstone stuff. Isaiah Yeshayahu is condemning Egypt of his time in the 8th century BCE, they're wicked, they're rotten, and they're going down the tubes, and they're going to suffer a lot. Okay, the end. That's the first half of the chapter. But then suddenly he shifts gears and says, in that day, some future time, five cities in the land of Egypt shall speak the language of Canaan and swear by the Lord of hosts. One should be called the city of destruction. In that day, there, will be an, there shall be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar at its border to the Lord. One day, the Egyptians are going to worship Hashem. They won't be pagan anymore. 
And in that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Wow, everybody gets to be chosen today. This is great. All of a sudden, Egypt, by worshiping Hashem, can be called God's people again. And so can the Assyrians, who in Shayosan, they were the ruthless superpower destroying the entire world, or at least the ancient Near Eastern part of the world. It was a terrible time. Uh, but one day, if they serve God and are decent people, well, welcome aboard. Come on, come on back. It's really great. Uh, there were Jews throughout the ages, by the way, who were terribly uncomfortable with this passage, so much so that they just reinterpreted it. In the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation of the Tanakh, written in the Second Temple period by Jews, uh, they did this in Greek, of course, but they were very uncomfortable with the idea that uh, the non-Jewish Egyptians should ever be called God's people. So they just made one little change. What they did is in verse 25, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, blessed be Egypt, my people. In Hebrew, I'm just going up here, it says, Baruch Ami Mitzrayim, which means blessed be Egypt, my people, right? Perfectly good translation by the Jewish Publication Society down here. Uh, what they did, what the authors of the Septuagint did, is Baruch Ami Bimitzrayim. Blessed be my nation in Egypt, meaning blessed be the Jews who live in Egypt. Nice move. One Hebrew letter addition changes the whole meaning of the text. Right? Rashi, on his commentary, he, can't, he doesn't do this in Greek, he ends up with the same interpretation. He says that it means, blessed be my nation Israel, whom I chose in Egypt. That's a lot of words missing from the Pasuk, but Rashi is convinced that God is not going to have chosen people who are non-Jews. But the text is saying what Ibn Ezra and many later commentaries follow, which is, no, once they embrace Hashem, they will be chosen people. And that is completely in sync with this prophecy in Tzfanyat. Tzfanyat lived in the following century, the 7th century BCE. And here it is, for then I will convert the peoples to a clear language, that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. So this passage is not just a way of saying that in the future times of redemption, all people will speak one clear language of serving God, but already in the medieval period, you know that uh, we follow the Babylonian tradition of having an annual cycle of Torah reading. We, st you know, Simchat Torah is the turning point, and we start all over again. And once a year, we finish, we finish reading the entire cycle of the Torah. Okay, and then of course, for every one of these parshiot, the rabbis chose various haftarot to read alongside them. In medieval Israel and certain communities in Egypt, they had something called the triennial cycle, where they actually concluded the Torah once every three plus years. It wasn't exactly three years, but it was over three years. So each parasha was considerably shorter than what we read in the Babylonian cycle. Okay, uh, that also means, well, two things. If you're one of those manufacturer of like Simchat Torah flags, you would lose a ton of business because suddenly Simchat Torah rolls around every three and a half years or so. You sell a lot fewer things. Uh, the good news is the rabbis now have to choose a lot more haftarot. Because now you need a haftarah for every piece of what we think of as a parasha. So sure enough, the haftarah for the Tower of Babel was this. Because the whole idea is that this passage isn't just one day all nations of the world will serve God. is that they'll all speak one clear unified language again. This is completely undoing the Tower of Babel where people were wicked and God changed their tongue so that they would be scattered. So this was the obvious antidote to that. 
So to summarize all of these things, what is chosenness in the Torah? You are chosen when you choose God. For Jews, that means faithfulness to the Torah and its covenant. For non-Jews, that means the seven Noahide laws. When you choose God, you are chosen. And when you don't choose God, then you are not. But even when you're not, it's never a permanent severance of the relationship. God has his arms open for all of humanity, which is why all people are part of a messianic vision of any prophet, that all people will be redeemed. The world only is going to have what you and I call Yemot Mashiach when all people serve God. Not just, not just, it's not just, it won't be good just only for the Jews. So why does the Torah start with Adam and Eve? And why did the medieval rabbis choose Adam and Eve as year one? Because that's the beginning of our religious system. Our religious system is that all people are created in God's image. We all have basic obligations to serve God. <laughs> and the world is redeemed when we get to that. When all people are doing that. That is properly our year one. Not Abraham and not Moshe. And that's the universalistic part of our tradition. But there's also a particularistic side of our tradition. The Jewish people do have a, a singular relationship with God. It's not the same as everybody else, because we received the Torah and we were chosen through Abraham. So there are several important details on the particularistic side of this as well. One is, uh, historically speaking, we were the first to recognize God this way. That's why Abraham makes his mark, and that's his people now get this singular covenantal relationship. God alludes to this in source number 10, as Moshe is a you know, heading toward, back to Egypt now. Then you shall say to Paro, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And therefore you have to let them go. Okay, we're the firstborn son, but as Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik points out, but all people are God's children. We're not the only son of, of Hashem. We're all from, we're all created in God's image. So that's piece number one. So we were the first. The second one is what our role is. Uh, when I was a teenager, there's a test, a standardized test in America called the SAT, the Standard Achievement Test. Uh, and it was a big deal when I was a kid. It's becoming less and less so. Uh, but all the same, and that's, that's fine. I didn't like the test then. I have no qualms with teenagers not having to put up with that at all. And there were two sections when I was a kid. One was called the verbal section, which tested your English abilities in various ways. One was called math. Okay. Math I was good at, so I did just fine. English, I had a problem. Uh, my, my friends called me Israeli after the preliminary test of this, not because my Hebrew was that impressive, but because my verbal English score was roughly on par with Israeli students in our class who didn't know a word of English. That was really sad. Now, the truth is I'm a native English speaker. I can handle that. And I was, I was able to speak English when I was 16 years old also. Uh, my problem was a section called the analogies. That it would be something is to something, as something is to something. My problem is I didn't take all these fancy tutorials that a lot of my, my friends took. So I just did not know what an analogy was. So I saw these things. And even if I knew what the words meant, I had no clue what I was supposed to answer. So I basically uh, did not do very well over there. Tough on me. I also didn't care. So I feel fine about that. I've since learned what an analogy is little late, but it's okay because it comes in handy at times like now. Uh, so one of the questions that would have shown up on the SAT, it wouldn't actually be on the SAT, but it actually would work out. But I could even write it with all the dots and everything now. It's really great. Yeah. 
the analogy question would show up something like that. Non-Jew is to Jew as Jew is to something. And then they would get on the SAT, they would give you a multiple choice question with five different options. I don't think this question actually would appear there. Uh, but, but as far as this Shior goes, it's a very important question indeed. And so the good news for this particular analogy is that God himself answered our question way back yonder in source three. Let's roll back up there. In verse 6, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So the right answer would be non-Jew is to Jew, as Jew is to Kohen. And that actually is a fabulous analogy to explain the entire biblical corpus and how it presents this issue. Uh, what are Kohanim? First of all, they're part of the family. They're not a separate group. They're simply distinguished from within the people of Israel, but everybody understands they're part of the Jewish people. So two, Israel is part of the family of nations. Okay, that's that piece of it. Number two, to be a Kohen is a genetic thing. In this case, it goes by the father. To be a Jew, it goes by the mother, but a convert to Judaism is simply viewed as though he or she is born in. They become Ben Avraham or Ben Sarah. So there's a family component to this. It's not simply a belief system, Judaism. It's, it certainly has a family component. So just as Kohanim are a spe special family within the people of Israel, the people of Israel are a special family within the nation, within the community of nations. Just as Kohanim have more mitzvot than us regular Israelites, so too Israelites have more mitzvot than non-Jews, than non-Israelites. Right, there are special mitzvot to govern the people of Israel as a mamlechet kohanim. Third thing is that kohanim, their job is to guard the temple. They're the ones who serve in the temple and guard it to make sure that us regular folk, I happen to be a regular folk, so I'm speaking us that way. Obviously, if you are kohanim, you can plug in. I'm not referring to you. You're the ones who get to guard the temple, so I don't go in. All right, so in the meantime, may the temple be rebuilt speedily in our days. Okay, so in the meantime, the kohanim have a special role to run the temple for the people of Israel. So, too, the people of Israel have a special role to run the temple for all God-fearing people. And finally, just as Kohanim are delegated to teach Torah to the people of Israel, so too the people of Israel are delegated to represent the Torah and teach the rest of humanity. So Mamlecha Kohanim, a nation of priests, is not just a nice title that God came up with to be poetic. It actually perfectly captures the role of the people of Israel throughout the entire Tanakh in terms of what role we play vis-a-vis -vis our family, nations of the world, because we're all from Adam and Chava. So once again, it turns out that I'm just plagiarizing Rabbi Ovadia Sforno. He's having a really good day. So here he goes in source number 11. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and in this manner you will be a treasure, for you will be a kingdom of priests to teach the entire human race to call in God's name and serve him alike. Exactly that. As it is written, you shall be called God's priests, and as it is written, for, you, for, for Torah will come from Zion. Voila. It's really a perfect analogy. So a fun question that I ask in public settings also, in a, in a live audience thing, it's a fun question. This isn't uh, an analogy, so I would do better at this type of thing. Avram Avinu was the first blank. So when you're a kid, you might hear, even as an adult sometimes, I'm always shocked to hear it as an adult, but as a kid, I'm not surprised that I heard Avram Avinu was the first Jew. He's very often called that. He's still very often called that. Okay, so then you get older and more sophisticated and you realize, oh, that's just terribly anachronistic. The word Jew to be used on Abraham is ridiculous. The word Jew derives from the person called Yehuda or Judah, 
who is a great-grandson of Abraham. And then anybody called Yehudim outside of the kingdom of Judah, the first time that we ever have evidence of somebody not from the tribe of Judah called Yehudi is Mordechai HaYehudi in the Megillah. And even then, it's really he came from the kingdom of Judah. We can't really say that it's all Jews. But at least that's the first reference. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. He's called Yehudi. Okay, so that's the very end of Tanakh. So to refer to Abraham as the first Jew is terribly, terribly anachronistic. Okay, so that one's wrong. Okay, so X that one out. Then you get more sophisticated and you say, oh, Abraham was the first monotheist. Okay, that's a more sophisticated response. The problem here is that it's just wrong. Right? Abraham, it's not anachronistic anymore. It's flat wrong. Adam was the first monotheist. The Torah doesn't present a story of people were all pagans, then Abraham is the one who figured out to be monotheistic. No. The world started monotheistic, and paganism came later. Okay, so now poor Abraham. He's, he better be the first something by the end of the shiur, or I will feel very bad. But he's not the first Jew, and he's definitely not the first monotheist. So, but what is? But he, somehow he did something special. What did he do? The answer is he was the first person in human history willing to spend tuition on yeshiva for his kids. Okay, that's a very important first. We have righteous people before him. We certainly have God-fearing people before him. But he was willing to spend money to raise his children that way. And that's what God points out in source number 12. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I, which I do, referring to the future destruction of Sodom in this case, uh, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, that they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. Okay. That's the big deal for Avraham. He's setting out the role of Mamlech Kohanim V'goy Kadosh. He wants to teach his children and his household. The nation of priests simply has to teach humanity, not by proselytizing, but by living a model life as Jews, keeping faithful to the Torah and inspiring people to realize this is the way to go. We should be ethical and serve God too. And so the whole saga of Tanakh is we haven't succeeded yet. Uh, you know, Adam failed, Noah failed, the Tower of Babel people certainly failed. Abraham was a great success as the world's first teacher, which is what he is the first of, right? But the mission of Tanakh is for us to live up to be the Mamlachet Kohanim V'goy Kadosh, be faithful to Hashem and the Torah, and God willing, inspire all the nations of the world to serve God as B'nai Noah. Anybody who wishes to convert as a Geret Tzedek certainly may, but nobody is required to do so. People simply serve God by keeping the Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noah, that ultimately our family, namely the descendants of Adam and Chava, should all live up to their image of God potential. And that's what it means to be the chosen people in Tanakh. I think. Uh, that all being said, I thank all of you, and this is the moment for Q&A. You could do that via Zoom, or you could just speak up. I could leave it to Abi to be the moderator. What I'm going to do is stop share so I could actually see more of you. Wow, hello, everyone. There's, I was only able to see like the first five. That's what happens to share screen. Okay, take it away. So, thank you, Rabbi. And if anyone has a question, if not, I'll, I'll go first. Um, so, you just we just went into the Mamlechet Kohanim, but one thing is we don't go around necessarily. We don't preach our values, ideas. Is it just an like a, a how do you say it like an exemplary nation, and therefore people will will watch us? Because I've always struggled with the idea that um, in 
let's go back a, a thousand years in Eastern civilization, they didn't know what the Jews were doing. So how how can you be playing the nowadays with internet and technology? Maybe you can broadcast values and ideas, but back then, you know, how could you play this role of Mamlechet Kohanim if there was no interaction? Oh, so so uh, you, for sure you're right. Today's communication makes it infinitely easier than than then. Uh, but I think God like the land of Israel, Yechezkel describes this in chapter 5 of his book. We were, in fact, at the crossroads of all civilization in the ancient Near East. Obviously, it wouldn't help us here in America. wouldn't help you in London either. But it would definitely help in the ancient Near Eastern world. Mesopotamia and Egypt had constant interactions, as did everybody. And it always came through Israel, uh, which turned out to be great for trade, terrible for military invasions, because everybody always came our way. So we were stuck in the middle of all of that stuff. But in terms of uh, forming a, a model nation, it actually was a feasible plan. It would have taken a long time, by the way. It's not like, oh, everybody in India would suddenly know about us and, and that. But there was a lot of, of interchange, and that interchange is what God seems to be banking on for a long-term project of winning humanity over. And it would take a long time. Internet makes it much easier. Other other things make it much easier, too. I, I, I love telling my kids, okay, I'm about to give a shiur in London. Please stay out of my office for an hour. Like, that's really cool. And, I, and, and you know, I, I couldn't do that even not that long ago. Uh, but, but this has definitely been a wonderful venue for, for learning. I learned about it only through the lockdown, at least, the, at least Zoom. But, I mean, there were earlier internet shiurim that definitely happened before. So we definitely have an advantage in terms of communications today. But the crossroads actually is what Yechezkel describes as that was God's hoped for plan that failed because Israel uh, turned to sin far too often. Okay, Robert. Okay, I think you just need to un. I think you need to unmute. Sorry, going back to the seeming contradiction between, um, I think it was the Ramban and I can't remember who. And Maharal uh, Prague, yeah. The Maharal Prague, thank you. Uh, we we seem to have sort of really settled on the opinion that we 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 can lose our connection with Akadosh Baruch Hu from all the sources you brought. I mean, yes, there were some sources in the Torah that suggest we don't. So how how do we kind of synthesize the two ideas? And that's what I'm probably struggling with. Okay. I think so from what you've said so far. Okay, so if you've asked, if you're asking that, that means I failed to communicate what I was trying to communicate. So I'm going to give it a second shot. Thank you for asking the question. Uh, I, the Tanakh makes chosenness conditional slash unconditional. Both Ramban and Maharal are right all along, and that yes, our chosenness is subject to failure if we sin, but simultaneously we can never lose the chosenness because it's a separation, not a divorce. In other words, we can harm the marriage with God. But it's a separation, not a divorce, because the relationship cannot end. So, so Ramban is right. There is an element of conditionality to it. And Maharal is right that there's an element of unconditionality. And both of those ingredients are absolutely part of chosenness. And by the and even though I said it, but I didn't bring the point home to Ramban versus Maharal, same holds true for humanity. When God rejected humanity at the Tower of Babel, same thing. It's a separation, not a divorce, as the later prophetic passages demonstrate. Nobody's permanently, nobody permanently severs their relationship with God. Right, got it. Okay, thank you. You clarified that. Thank you. Questions? So I I wanted to follow up on on, the, on my 
previous comment and to what extent therefore is the role for if we are mamlakat kohanim to and sort of that's how at least the Sephorno says that's what makes us amsagula treasured nations because of that mamlakat kohanim so to what extent should we be um, making the effort and becoming um, not evangelicals we're not necessarily trying we're not bringing people in <laughs> but we still need to be spreading the message and it doesn't that's seem to be the focus yeah it's a great question. Again, all I can tell you is the prophetic record is very clear. They spend their energies on the people of Israel. And even when they give prophecies, la'amim, you know, they're giving nivuat la'amim to other nations, they're not really sending letters to those nations. They're using their condemnation of those nations to teach something to Israel. There are very few, I mean, there are a couple of exceptions. Obviously, the prophet Yonah goes to Nineveh. That's an unusual move, to actually send a prophet to a foreign nation to get them to repent. And that's a cool book for another time. Uh, but the standard prophetic plan is, let's try to get our own house in order first, and then others will be inspired. Again, because we have so many more opportunities to communicate today than in prior generations, uh, to me, there's nothing bad about us trying to sell the Shavuot Mitzvah B'nai Noach, right? In other words, to really be out there for human decency in the fullest sense. And there certainly are many Jews, whether or not they are hearing the shiur, who in one way or another, sometimes very constructively, sometimes a little destructively, if you ask me, are at least trying to promote some moral message to the world. They do, they, Jews are, are totally disproportionately involved uh, in that sort of thing. So in principle, that's the right idea. So, so perhaps you can say we are in evangelical, but for the Sheva Mitzvah Bene Noah, not for the conversion to Judaism. Correct. But but even that, we're not evangelical in the sense of being required to go to the four corners of the globe. It's God's ideal, I'll say this sitting in my, my house in Teaneck, is for all Jews to be living in Israel, building the ideal society. Right? That's for sure the ideal. There's no expectation that we're going to go out there to all four corners of the globe to proselytize, even to Noahideism. Rather, if we're if we are our house is in order and living the ideal Jewish life in Israel, word will get out. We see a taste of that, by the way, going back to Avi's point from before in Shlomo's time. You have the Queen of Shiva who heard of all of Shlomo's reputation and comes. That's a glimmer of what the Messianic era could look like, even without uh, internet. Like there was enough communication out there that people knew Israel was the place to to come and see. They would go to the temple, they would speak to the wise prophetic king, and they would probably learn some of his great wisdom. Okay, so it's a long-term project when everybody has to have an in-person thing or sages or scribes, however this is going. Uh, but that was sort of the vision. Again, today we can expedite this with all of the means of, of communication at our disposal. There was a discussion in our WhatsApp group is very active and I encourage people to get involved if you want to continue the conversations and it's usually based off the shirim and um one of the I can't remember who they were quoting but it was an, at least an interpretation of Rambam that the, the Sheva Mitzvot Ben Enoach are not necessarily universal but they are to be imposed only on the Ger Toshav um, and only within the bounds of sovereign Israel um, as opposed to the, the rest of humanity and i think one of the proofs um was along the lines of if how can we impose like um for the other nations to set up courts of law um if you know is there is there law in other countries and how does that work you know so how can we go and impose courts of law in other sovereign countries um i don't know if you've heard that theory i don't know what you think of that <laughs> 
I, I think the question is strange, at least the way you're, you're framing it. So let me just, I only have a, I only have a minute or two, so let's, let's, no. let's boil it right on down. Here goes. Uh, in the land of Israel, all people must follow yeah. the Shavu Mitzvah B'nai Noach, and since the presumption is that we're, we rule over the country, we can't actually impose, to use your word. Right? Our court systems would judge anybody who violates the Noachide laws harshly. Okay. Outside of the land of Israel, we don't have any jurisdiction at all. There's no expectation that Jews impose anything on anybody, right? It's more inspire everybody to do this. And, and the, the, the imperative comes from, from Noah, not from, from us. We Jews don't have a role in imposing such laws on any other nation. We can teach or inspire or explain why we think this is great or just live a model life with a moral society. And people can say, wow, that society really is productive and really worse. We want to be like that. But in, in practice, nations did open up their own court systems and everybody had some civil law that at least on some level harks to everybody gets it. There are certain basic laws that you need just to have a, a functioning society. We might draw the lines in the Torah in different places from the way Hammurabi did or the Assyrians or the Hittites, but we all they, they all understood at some very rudimentary level, you need to have courts and you need to have some basic civil law. Okay. On that incredibly okay, happy you. note, I, I thank you all again. I thank Avi, I thank the Chabura, yeah. and I look forward to learning with you next week. Looking forward to next week. Thank you so, so much. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, everyone, for joining. And next week, we'll be looking at the afterlife. So have a good rest of the day. Good evening. Good night, wherever you may be. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much.